Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Thank you so much for joining me as I continue this series on James Fenimore Cooper's Leather Stocking Tales. And um, if you're just joining us, I urge you to go back and listen to the previous episode where I start us off with the first 100 pages of The Deerslayer. Um, and we'll be continuing on with the second 100 pages of The Deerslayer covering roughly chapters 6 through 12. So in the first part of The Deerslayer, our main character, Natty Bumpo, or as he's always referred to in this story as the Deerslayer or briefly as Hawkeye, which will be the name he takes in the second volume in the series, The Last of the Mohicans. Deerslayer meets up with a man named Hurry Harry and they travel together to a place called the castle, which is actually a kind of a cabin on a shoal in Lake Ostego, or as it's called in the story, Glimmerglass. And there they meet an older former mariner, it seems, or there's some rumors about his background, named Thomas Hutter. He lives with his two daughters, Judith Hutter and, and Hetty Hutter. Judith is very beautiful, and Hurry Harry intends to marry her someday. And unfortunately, the Hutter... Hutters are surrounded by a group of Huron Indians, an unknown number, but dozens of them who are camped out nearby. It's in the context of the war, St. George, Saint, uh, not St. George's War, um, King George's War, which is part of the War of Austrian Secession being fought out in the New World between the French and the British. So there's a war going on and there's bounties out for the scalps of white people, which Indians are eager to claim. And there are bounties out for the scalps of Indians. Hutter and Hurry want to go out and scalp some women and children to make some money and hopefully intimidate the Huron a little bit to leave them be. But at the very least, he can make some money from it. Deerslayer a moralist and in some ways very much a cultural relativist believing that white people should not engage in the ways of of Indians refuses to do this refuses to help them and that's where the story sort of lets off that they go off to scalp some Indian women and children and instead are captured by the Huron Deerslayer back in, you know in his canoe watching all this eventually falls asleep because it's late and and it's kind of an odd place for him to sleep. But that actually happens a couple of times in the story where characters sleep at the at the oddest, strangest times in the midst of danger. Um, a lot of what we learn in the first part of this novel is about the conflict between Deerslayer and his values and those of of Hurry Harry and and Thomas Hutter as well. Those Hurry and, and Hutter 
believe strongly kind of in what's good for the goose is good for the gander. We live in a frontier, there's no law, and we have to do what's best for us. And if that means we have to be savage and brutal, that's the way it is. Deerslayer is much more moralistic. However, he's not entirely unviolent. In fact, he's here on his quote-unquote first warpath. Natty Bumpo Deerslayer was raised in large part by um, the Delaware. And he's actually here to participate in his first warpath along with his friend who is also who's the chief of the Delaware, Chingachgook. He's also there to find his, his love. So that sort of summarizes what happened in the first six chapters of the Deerslayer. But I have a lot more I say about it if you go back to the to the previous episode. So if you haven't read the Deerslayer, you don't really know what's going on there. You might want to go back to to that section. There's a lot of major tensions in this novel, like the the tension between white and Indian culture, especially in the frontiers. Tensions over over morality and and sort of lawlessness or immorality in the frontier. There's also tensions between kind of the role of men and the role of women, particularly there's a lot of women in this story living in a frontier area. And the question is like, what's the proper life for for women? And courtship is a big part of the story. You know, actually, there's a couple, there's actually three or so couples that we can kind of tease out in this story. And so what is, the, what is the role between men and women? And how does the frontier environment change that? And how does culture affect that? How, how are Indian women seen versus how white women were seen in these areas? There's tensions between kind of the beautiful and the ugly or the intelligent and the simple. Deerslayer is very ugly. Hurry Harry is very handsome. Judith, very beautiful. Her sister, more simple. Not really ugly, but, but certainly not nearly as beautiful as Judith. And then same with intelligence. Judith and Deerslayer are very intelligent. Hetty is very simple-minded and direct and literal, as is in some ways Hurry Harry and some other characters. And we also have here honor versus treachery. Deerslayer always calls these sarcumventions, sarcumventions, which is which is kind of a general all-purpose term for kind of conspiracies and plans and plots. And this is often contrasted with kind of honorable behavior. So there's all these tensions in the, all they're all set up in the early stage of the novel and they're going to not go away. They're going to be here throughout this whole novel and we're, we're going to spend five whole episodes on the Deerslayer. So we're going to kind of go through this slowly and systematically and, and with due seriousness because it, it is an important novel in American literature. So, oh, one thing I didn't mention in the previous episode and I really think about I'm not going to say much about it here either I'm just going to mention it if you haven't read the Deerslayer or if you did and maybe you forgot each chapter is prefaced by a quote of verse um, from some poet in the English tradition uh, looking at chapter seven right here we have a passage from Byron's Child Herald's Pilgrimage these, most of these are poems I've never heard of before and I don't really read English poetry mostly they're Englishmen Seems I don't think at the time there were many significant American poets. I guess you have Poe uh, writing a little bit of poetry at this point at this time, but mostly he's drawing from English poetry. Um, so this is from Byron. There there are I guess lesser known um, poets. I I don't know, but it seems Cooper really read a lot of poetry and he had a lot to draw from each one of these chapters. And it's true throughout the Leatherstocking Tales where he prefaces every chapter with uh, 
a poem and it often speaks to some of the themes and the events in the chapter in in interesting ways i'm not going to dissect each one but they're there if, if you want to analyze it and think about it but let, let's pick up with chapter seven here so in this chapter we basically pick up right where we left off with the deer slayer alone on a canoe having slept after his comrades were captured by the hurons he faces this immediate problem as one of the canoes he had was drifting away so Basically, the equipment they have here at Glimmerglass is they have the, the castle itself, this which is basically like a house or a fort, but it's called the castle. It's on a shoal, so it's protected by water. And the Huron, the quote-unquote Mingos, which is the pejorative term for them, need to, need to use boats to get there. And, and they have kind of really bad rafts. But Hutter has a couple canoes and he has an ark. So he has this big water-going boat water going boat that's obvious but I, I think an ark is kind of like a river boat so he's got the ark and he's got canoes and you know keeping track of these conveyances is an important plot point in the novel because it's basically the threat how the Huron could get possibly to attack uh, the the castle and so one of these canoes is drifting away towards the shore where it could be captured by the Huron he can't allow the the Mingos to get control of it because it's only it's the only thing preventing them from taking over the island and the castle and the and protecting the women. So as he approaches the canoe, he is shot at by a Huron warrior. And so we witness a competing sense of morality of war in the fights in the fight that ensues. So this is a page five ninety four of the Library of America version of the Deerslayer, which is actually in the Leatherstocking Leather Tales Volume Two, because Library of America presents these as in the order they were published, not the order that they take place. And so, one thing that happens a lot, and I think it's a thing that's annoying to some people who read Cooper, and is, I think it might be one of the things that Mark Twain complained about, is that instead of having like an internal monologue, his characters just speak out loud, even if they're all alone. And and so we got. Here's Cooper writes, he's muttering to himself unconscious that he was even speaking. And quote, no, no, that must be the redskin warfare. But it's not a Christian's gift. Let the miscreant charge and then we'll take it out like men. For the canoe must not be and shall not have. No, no, let him have time to load and then God will take care of the right. And later on, he, he says, no, no, Mingo, that will never do. You neither own, you own neither taking the canoes and neither shall you have as long as I can prevent it I know it's a war between you people and mine and that's no reason why human mortals should slay each other like savage creatures that meet in the woods go your own way and leave me to mine the world is large enough for both of us and when we meet fairly in battle why the Lord will order the fate of each of us so he's got this very strong morality about war and both sides sort of have this it, it's really people like Hutter and Hurry Harry who seem to ignore morality in, in, in some ways, these are like knights with certain codes of honor. Now, they're very different codes of honor. But since Deerslayer comes from being raised by Indians, he takes that with him, but he also adds to it his Christian morality. And that shapes it. But there's, there's for, from his point of view, there's rules of war. And there's a morality to war. Deerslayer tries to negotiate with this Huron because after he shoots, he's basically helpless because there's these one-shot rifles, one-off one rifles. He says the canoe belongs to Hutter, and they debate ownership. And that, that's kind of what I read from a little bit, is this debate over ownership. But Deerslayer eventually convinces the Huron to depart peacefully. But when he's not far away, 
though he turns and he prepares to shoot. And actually, Deerslayer was watching him as they walked away the whole time, so he wasn't tricked at all. Deerslayer watches him do this, and is therefore he's finally forced to shoot the Huron first. And this is his first shot in anger at another human being in his life, right? And it will eventually be his first kill. The Mingo doesn't die right away, but it is going to be his first kill on his first warpath. And it's the first time he had to do this. He's known as a deer slayer up to this point because he's very good. He's got a sharp eye and he's able to kill deer very easily. Even the morality of hunting deer is discussed in this, in this novel. It's, it's rather fascinating in the early part. Now, Deerslayer is kind to the wounded and dying Huron, even taking him to the water, having, you know, helping him drink water. And they talk a lot. They, they talk for quite a while. Um, and he basically stays at his side while he dies. And they talk about the afterlife. They talk about death. And we have a lot of kind of his cultural relativism here. First, he says there's no enmity between us anymore, right? The, our battle's over. We're done fighting so we can be friends as, as you die. He says, it would be sinful in me to tell you your time hadn't come, warrior. And therefore, I'll not say it. You've passed the Middle Age already. And considering the sort of lives you lead, the days have been pretty well filled. The principal thing now is to look forward to what comes next. Neither red skin nor pale face on the whole calculates much on sleeping forever, but both expect to live in another world. Each has his gifts and will be judged by him. And I suppose you've thought these matters over enough, not to stand in need of sermons when the trial comes. You'll find your happy hunting grounds if you've been a just Indian. And if an unjust, you'll meet your deserts in another way. I have my own ideas about these things, but you're too old and experienced to need an explanation from one as young as I. It's sometimes a consolation when the end comes and we know we've been harmed or tried to harm, forgive us. I suppose nature seeks this relief by way of getting a pardon on earth, as we never can know whether he pardons, who is in all things till judgment comes itself. It's soothing to know that any pardon at such times, and that I conclude is the secret. So, it's, it's quite a, a nice long discussion. Now, the Indian's dying, and he can just sort of say, good. Uh, from time to time and he doesn't have very good English it seems um, now during this I mean basically we have uh, different elements of this conversation about death one is this idea that Indians really live a full life in freedom and so even though if they, if they don't live to 80 they live a fuller life than white people because of the type of life they live and that's something that I think Cooper seemed to believe there's a lot in here about the Christian afterlife and fear, but this is contrasted to the Indian ha ha uh, afterlife. And, and he doesn't say you're going to go to the Christian heaven or hell or hell because you reject Christianity. He says there's happy hunting ground for you and there may be heaven for me. So there is this kind of relativism in his, his morality, even though he's quite absolutist about his values, about he, how he applies them. He's not willing to compromise them, but he's open-minded to, to different truths out there on the frontier. And then we have all this stoicism towards bodily suffering and death displayed, particularly by the, the dying man. Now, from this man, Deerslayer gets a new name from, for himself, and this is Hawkeye. Now, of course, no one's here to really witness this, but Deerslayer will present himself as Hawkeye later on in the novel. And from this, we get the, the spread of the name. And this is where his name comes from, which is used in The Last of the Mohicans, written before this novel, but... Um, set afterwards 
Now, I don't know if that's this is retconned, if this is just how Cooper wanted to explain where the name came from, but it, it's, it's here. Now, this chapter is a test for Deerslayer. He doesn't change his morality towards war, which was expressed earlier in the novel, despite the treachery level against him by the Huron. Now, the sort of the opposite is going to happen in a late in later in the novel, in which Hurry Harry is peacefully returned to the camp after being captured, and he turns around and and, and tries to fire on his his former captors. So he's the traitor. He refuses to even scalp uh, his victim after he dies, or Deerslayer refuses to scalp him. So he does, even though it's like easy money for him, and it's it's kind of the practice it seems during this war. Now, on his way back after the man dies, on his way back he finds the drifting canoe and he finds that it has an Indian in it as well. And here he has a chance to just murder him because he's unarmed, but instead Deerslayer threatens him and lets him go. The chapter ends with some really beautiful imagery as Deerslayer comes to the castle. He sees these beautiful women outside of the castle and he sees the sunrise at the same time. And these two things are presented together. And, and it's something Cooper does really well is these really beautiful scenes of nature. They're very vivid. And I know part of the criticism of, of, of Cooper might be that he spends so much time building up these long, detailed descriptions of, you know, of, of nature. But there are also some really memorable uh, scenes and, and imagery. All right. Um, chapter 8. So Deerslayer, now it's Deerslayer and, and the women because Hurry Harry and Hutter have been captured. And Deerslayer tells this story to, to the women and says there's nothing we really can do now. They best wait for Chingachgook to arrive. Chingachgook is this Delaware chief, good friends of the Deerslayer on, the, on this warpath with them. And says Deerslayer alone can't really hope to liberate the men, but maybe with Chingachgook they'll be able to pull it off. Deerslayer explains a bit about Chingachgook's own mission. Um, now, we don't quite, or, or he knows, but but I don't think this is revealed to us till a little bit later, is that he wants to free his betrothed, Watawa, or Histahist. So she'll go by both names, or just Hist, usually. But Watawa is her name. I think Histahist is, is kind of the transliteration of sorts of that. And then she just goes by Hist. She's captured by the hero. In fact, she was kind of sold out by another Delaware. And she was captured before the events of the novel. So Chingachgook wants to basically rescue her. So that's why he's at this particular place. Now, there's an important item. I, I don't want to say a MacGuffin because it doesn't quite qualify as MacGuffin, but it's a, more like a Chekhov's gu uh, gun kind of thing. Is We have this chest. It's identified. Um, in this chapter. It's it's Hutter's chest. So Hutter is already rumored to have been a pirate. He's rumored to have uh, this great wealth hidden away. And like like a, basically like a pirate's treasure. And he's got this chest. And of course we're led to think that there's something precious in this chest. Judith is not allowed to look into this chest, this wood chest, and it's really finely made. But Hetty has seen into it from time to time. And the reason for this is is Hutter is not really intimidated by Hetty, who he doesn't take seriously as an intellectual equal of his. And he's not really worried. It's the same way maybe, you know, you let a, a baby see things you wouldn't let an older child see uh, because you don't take them seriously as 
uh, someone who's going to retain and use that knowledge of what they discover. It, it seems to have important material, though, that and he wants to protect this knowledge from even his own family as well as others. So it's really locked up nice and, and tight. We get a long description of it. As always with Cooper, we get long descriptions of everything. But um, although discolored and bearing proof of having been received much ill treatment, he saw that it was of materials and workmanship altogether superior to anything of the same sort he had ever seen before, before it beheld. The wood was dark, rich, and had once been highly polished, though the treatment it had received left little gloss on its surface, and various scratches and indentations proved the rough collisions that it had encountered with substances still harder than itself. The corners were firmly bound with steel, elaborately and richly wrought, while the lock, which had no less than three, and the hinges were of fashion and workmanship that would have attracted attention even in a warehouse of curious furniture. The chest was quite large, and when Deerslayer rose and endeavored to raise an end by its massive hand handle, he found that the weight fully corresponded with the external appearance. So, yeah, it's, it's an important item in the whole book. They talk about love in this chapter as well. Judith wants to know why Deerslayer has not been in love. And Deerslayer basically responds that he's lived with Indians and he can't love a quote-unquote red-skinned woman. woman. And I, I think it's interesting. So Hurry Harry is really the racist and he's the overt racist and he's willing to just uh, slaughter people, but he's willing to adapt Indian ways if that's what's necessary. It's Chinga or sorry, it's Deerslayer who's raised by the Delaware, yet still holds most firmly to his whiteness. And, and he sees his whiteness really in his morality and his behavior of war and the way he treats other people. But he also understands the Indians a lot better. So I don't want to say that he's He's beyond racism. He's more of a multiculturalist. And I, that's a point I made last time, too. And we see this here, that he, he doesn't see it possible to, to love a red-skinned woman. But I get the sense that someone like Hurry Harry or even or Hutter would be less, I guess, picky about the racial uh, background of, of the women they get together with. So the time's approaching when Deerslayer was arranged, had, had arranged to meet with Chinchgachguk. So they have to set out, and Deerslayer takes the women with him on the ark because he can't, doesn't really want to leave them behind. Cooper takes some time here to discuss class and gender uh, on the frontier, which I think is an important point and something that maybe people can develop and think more about. Um, yeah, so the reader will probably have observed that amidst the frankness and abruptness of manner which marked the frontier habits of Judith, her language was superior to that used by her male companions, her own father included. The difference extended as well to pronunciation as to the choice of words and phrases. Perhaps nothing so soon betrays the education and association as the modes of speech. And a few accomplishments so much aid the charm of female beauty as the graceful and even utterance, while nothing so soon produces the disenchantment that necessarily follows a discrepancy between her appearance and manner as a mean intonation of voice or a vulgar use of words. Judith and her sister were marked exceptions to all the girls of their class along the whole frontier. The officers of the nearby garrisons, having often flattered the former with the belief that few ladies of the towns acquainted themselves better than herself in this important particular. This was far from being literally true, but it was sufficiently near to the fact to give birth to the compliment. 
The girls were indebted to their mother for this proficiency, having acquired from her in childhood an advantage that no subsequent study or labor can give without drawback, if neglected beyond an earlier period of life. So a lot there about education on the frontier and kind of what women on the frontier are sort of like. And the suggestion here is that they're largely vulgar. And it's really Judith and Hetty are special because of the influence of their mother. Um, but I think there's stuff about class and gender and the frontier experience, education and all these things here. By and large, though, this is a rather slow chapter. And you might wonder why they're not more hasted, but Deerslayer lets the women know that the men won't be killed. We're, we're left to sure that you, know, you don't need to rescue them right away because they'll either be held for ransom because the, the Hurons will want to get something for them or they'll be tortured before being killed and scalped. And so there's kind of this tradition uh, that you'll torture them and they kind of prove their manliness that way. And, and I think you can eat, they could even evade death if you take your torture well enough. And this is all foreshadowing a scene that's going to happen at the end, a major torture scene. The Huron essentially wouldn't waste captives by killing them so quickly. So we're given time to reflect on, on these things. And Judas is able to develop in a little bit more fully her fondness and admiration for, for Deerslayer. Um, so, chapter 9. They locate Kinchinjgatguk, and he's being pursued by a large group of Huron. It was like 20 or so. He leaps under the ark and he barely makes it in. Now, Deerslayer was able to identify him right away by the unique way he wears a feather. So we see how observant Deerslayer is. We, we, we get a little bit about Shingachgut's name here, which, which seems to mean serpent. And that's how often Deerslayer refers to him as serpent. Serpent. Uh, there's these kind of ways that Deerslayer expresses things like circumventions or or serpent with like S-A-R-P-E-N-T is how it's spelled in the text. And I think this might come out of the fact, this is actually in direct contrast to the way Judith and Hetty talk, which, you know, is much more formal. And Deerslayer has these kind of informal way of speaking and it's, it's kind of a little bit accented and, and awkward and he sometimes mispronounces things. And it seems he just lear didn't learn properly how to pronounce certain words. Now, Deerslayer and Chingachgook share their stories, and Chingachgook is able to report on Hurry and Hutter because he saw them at the Huron camp. And they're actually called the Old Man, or the Falling Hemlock, and the Tall Pine, or, or the Young Warrior. So Thomas Hutter is the Falling Hemlock, the Old Man, and, and Hurry Harry is the Young Warrior, or the Tall Pine. He thinks they're going to be killed or tortured the next day, but he also knows that Histahist is with the Huron group and that his betrothed is there. So there's a chance to save all three of them. Meanwhile, Judith's affection for Deerslayer continues to grow, and she becomes more and more enamored with him, and eventually she, she comes to love him. She is, of course, at the start of the novel, set up as the love interest of, of Hurry Harry and the one that he's likely going to marry. Chinchgachguk hears about Deerslayer's first kill and is quite proud of him, and it, it's something that I think Deerslayer is a little bit hesitant to fully accept because he's much more serious about it. For him, the warpath is not the chance to, to put the first notch on his on his rifle. He, he's got other reasons for wanting to be here. Now, what's their main plan? Their main plan here to, to free these people from the Huron is, you know, they can't really f use military force to free them. They don't have the power, but they think they can use the possessions in the castle to ransom the men. 
The only problem with the strategy is it still has to be based on a capacity to defend the castle. Because if you just trade, ransom them, well, they can they could take the stuff, right? If you can't defend the castle, they could just take things. So there's really no incentive to, to, to ransom them if they can take it. So you, they need to sort of do both. Now, Hetty is apparently dissatisfied with this plan, and she, very stupidly, as it turns out, thinks that she can talk the Hurons into giving up the captives, and she just sort of sets off on her own. And it's kind of preposterous in a way, but she's presented as so naive and so simple-minded almost that she doesn't see any... Or she doesn't understand why she can't just talk to them, right, and, and convince them. And her, her, her approach is almost biblical, or it is biblical, where she thinks God's law will convince them to give up their captives. So she is, she's uh, driven by love in this act because she's quickly falling in love with Hurry Harry. But she's also revealed as very reckless and foolish to the point of near ridiculousness. Um, but that's, that's how chapter 9 ends. Chapter 10. So Hetty manages to get away from the Ark on, in a more mobile canoe. And she's even able to like outwit and outmaneuver Deerslayer. But still, Deerslayer is eventually able to track her down salvage the canoe and he speaks directly to Hetty. Deerslayer warns her that the Huron will not be so easily convinced to give up the captives and basically saying that she's going to be risking her life on what's going to prove to be a stupid mission. But she believes strongly in in kind of her religious upbringing. For her it's really a religious thing. Um, here's what she says. Um Let me find it. Sorry. Okay, here it is. Um, well then, dear Slayer, you seem a good and honest young man, I will tell you. I mean not to say a word to any of the savages until I get face to face with their head chief. Let them plague me with as many questions as they please. No, I'll answer none of them unless it to be to tell them to lead me to their wisest man. Then, dear Slayer, I'll tell him that God will not forgive murder or thefts and that if father and hurry did not go after the scalps of the Iroquois, he must return good for evil, for so the Bible commands, else he will be go into everlasting punishment. When he hears this and feels it to be true, as I feel he must, how long will it be before he sends Father and Hurry and me to our shore opposite the castle, telling us the three to go our way in peace? So this is the naivete of, of, of Hetty thinking she can simply talk them into it and that kind of God's, like the Holy Spirit will convince them to let them go. She thinks it's a really good argument though. She thinks the Indians won't want to risk their eternal souls for a few captives. The problem is they simply don't know about God in her, in her mind anyway. She thinks they just don't know about God and if they're just told about him, they'll, they'll convert and they'll change their ways. So she sets out and it's not really clear to me why Deerslayer is not able to just pin her down and take her, but she just kind of goes off. And the rest of the chapter is basically about Hetty approaching the Heron camp. And eventually she falls asleep. So what is it with people falling asleep at strange points? It happens twice in the early parts of the novel. Once the Deerslayer sleeps after seeing his two comrades captured by the Heron and dragged away and being ordered to protect the women. It wasn't just that he, 
they, they left. He was like, well, I have nothing to do. It's almost like they wanted to set up the next scene and he needed him to be waking up at a certain point. It's the same here. She falls asleep so she can be woken up by Hist. And it doesn't make sense to me why she would fall asleep at this point. Um, it's kind of like how in, in Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft stories, people are always fainting. Here, people are always sleeping at strange times. But, you know, she's woken up eventually by an Indian woman, and it's Hist. Um, and Cooper talks a little bit here about Indian beauty, um, which is kind of interesting. It was a girl not much older than herself, this is Hist, whose smile was sunny as Judas in her brightest moments, whose voice was melody itself, and whose accents and manners had all the rebuke gentleness that characterized the sex among a people who habitually treat their women as the attendants and servitors of the warriors. Beauty among the women of the Aboriginal Americans, before they had become exposed to the hardship of wives and mothers, is by no means uncommon. In this particular and original owners of the country were not unlike their more civilized successors. Nature appearing to have bestowed them delicacy of mien, an outline that forms so great a charm in the youthful female, but of which they're so early deprived and that too so much by the habits of domestic life as from any other cause. The, so we get here a, a sense of the fleetingness of, of the beauty of Indian women because of the harshness of their, their life. So Hist and Hetty talk for a while and Hist sizes her up right away as simple-minded, but thinks that this might be to her advantage. She thinks the Huron might be sympathetic to a simple-minded girl. And so Hist leads her to the Huron camp and the contrast between the Indians and the whites continue in this chapter. We've been getting it throughout the whole book, but they're continued here, especially as Hist and Hetty discuss things. Now, they're, they're both women in the same stage of life, both at that stage where marriage is a near possibility, but they see the world in very, very different ways. And it's rather a fascinating conversation they have. So chapter 11. Now, the main action of this chapter is Hetty's argument toward the Huron about why they should free the captives. But as he does often, Cooper begins this chapter with this broad panoramic view of the scene. So we get this whole view of this Indian camp. And it's not even an Indian camp for very long because after this scene, they move. Because once they're identified, they feel they need to move to further security. But he still gives us this very beautiful depiction of, of the scene. So even a temporary war camp gets this Cooper treatment. Hetty talks to her father, uh, so she's able to talk to the captives. He's very concerned and worried about her well-being now that she's at the camp. Hurry, meanwhile, insists on the morality of his actions in his situation. He did nothing wrong, he says, in attempting to take scalps. He's just kind of living by the law of the frontier, or even the law of nature, more fundamentally. I think at one point even, he says this earlier in the book, where taking the scalp of an Indian is no different than taking like a trophy from a wolf or a bear or something. Now, Hetty's very simple-minded, of course, and she sees the men not tied up and doesn't understand why they're not just free to go. And Hurry needs to explain this reality to the girl that, yeah, we're not tied up, but we're still captives and we can't go. And um, the, the meaning of captivity is played with here a lot. Um, later on, Deerslayer is going to be captive and he's also kind of allowed to go. And it's all about morality and honor and, and duty. And even if you're captured, you have a certain duty to stay with your captors. Now, Hetty begins her plea to the Huron at some point, the Huron chief. And 
it's Watawa translating or Histahist is translating into the, the Huron language. Now, Hedy is certainly presented as, as rather stupid in this chapter, but it's really because of her inability to distinguish between objective and subjective truth. And I, I think this is something Deerslayer, yeah, but it's also true for Hist, and to a certain degree for Hurry and Hutter, they're much more flexible about truth, on, especially on the frontier. Hurry and Hutter are, are able to take whatever they want, whatever is useful to them, law of the nature. For Deerslayer, he really does see the, the deep cultural differences between the two, and he doesn't really make a judgment. It's like when he's talking to the dying Indian, he's like, you go to happy hunting grounds, I'll, you know, I may go to heaven. The Indians also talk about truth as subjective, but Hetty is the one who really comes in with this objective truth from the Bible. For Hetty, there must be a generalizable truth, and that's the only thing that can win over the heart of, of the captors. She says, no, no, hiss, there can't be two sides to truth, and yet it does seem strange. I'm certain I've read the verse right, and no one would be so wicked as to print the word of God wrong. That can never be hissed. Now, we meet here the chief of the Huron, Rivenoak, and he easily outwits Hetty's really lame and straightforward biblical arguments. The heart of his criticism of her, though, is that the whites don't even follow these biblical laws. So why are you lecturing us about the Bible when whites don't follow these, these laws? And why should they, right? Why, why should they follow laws that the whites don't even follow? Now, at the end of the chapter, Hutter holds out some hope that Hist can help them escape. So he thinks, you know, Hist, she's an Indian, she's kind of on our side, so maybe she'll help us escape. And I, I like this chapter because the Hurons seem to be talking back to all of Christian civilization in their response to Hetty. Hetty's giving kind of the, la the language, the, the, the discourse, the lecture of the missionary, of the preacher. And the Huron in Rivenoak in particular is able to talk back to them. And this is their chance because these are people who've been devastated by European impact, by the disruption of their society, by disease, by violence and war. And they've been pushed to the end, right? And of course, one of his books is called, Cooper's books is called Last of the Mohicans. So the kind of the idea of the last Indian and the, and the dying people is, is very strong here. And this is their chance to kind of talk back to Christian civilization, right? And it's not just talking back to Hetty. But Hetty is not intellectually capable of answering for all of Christendom. Yet they expect her to do that. So Hetty's mission is a failure. So uh, then we get to chapter 12. Uh, we return to the Ark. And so we have, we kind of leave the scene with Hist and Hetty. And so it's Chinjgachguk, Deerslayer, and Judith. And we're introduced again to our, our wood box, which was introduced before. The party discusses what it is they could put together to ransom the men. Judith says she's willing to give up her clothes but also wonders why Indians would want fancy women's clothing in the wild. Now, this idea of this idea we're given of Indian women dressing like European women is paralleled by an act of Deerslayer giving Chingachgook some white men's clothing. And that's in order to hide his identity. It's like you want to pose as a white person, you know, in the upcoming negotiations or for whatever reason. And this idea of kind of the, the role of clothes and, its, and, and race is played with here. And there seems to be a distinction, like Indians don't want to wear white people's clothes. Judith can't imagine it, and Chinchgachkuk is openly hostile to it. 
and as soon as he can, he changes back to, to Indian clothing. Worried that the clothes will not be enough to ransom, because Judith has uh, a nice, some rather nice clothes, they decide, let's open this locked chest. We'll open this chest, see what's in it, and maybe there'll be something in there that will save Hutter's life and, and Hurry's life in the bargain. But they need to find the key. It's very well locked. They search the house, and they realize, or Deerslayer, I think, realizes that Hutter did not care if Hetty looked inside the chest. She only cared if Judith did. So where to hide the key? He'd hide it somewhere that Judith would never think of looking. And so they, in fact, they do find the key in a pouch among Hetty's poor kind of homespun clothing. Judith would never wear such vulgar clothing. So she would never even look there. So with the key, they go into the chest and there's almost this religious ritual of carefully opening the chest, of asking permission, of making sure that Judith is okay with them looking inside and taking out material. They look inside, they take things out one at a time. They don't even take out everything. They just, they just take out a handful of things. The first thing is clothing. Quite expensive clothing. And both men's and women's expensive clothing. This is the women's clothing that attracts the materialistic Judith. And she's kind of distracted by that for a moment. Now, as materialistic as Judith is, it's important to note here that Cooper sees the Indians as no less materialistic and material. And this is why the ransom is going to work for them. Quote, Chinchgachku cannot refrain from an exclamation of pleasure as soon as Deerslayer opened this coat and held it up to view. For notwithstanding all, all his trained self-command, the splendor of the vestment was too much for the philosophy of an Indian. Deerslayer turned quickly, and he regarded his friends with momentary displeasure as this burst of weakness escaped him, and then he soliloquized, as it was his practice whenever any strong feeling suddenly got to the ascendant. "'Tis a gift, yes, tis a gift of a red skin to love finery, and he is not to be blamed. This is an extraordinary garment, too, and extraordinary things give up extraordinary feelings. I think this was a Jew, Judith, for the Indian's heart is hardly to be found in all America that can withstand clothes like these and glitter like these. If this coat was made for your father, you've come honestly by your taste for finery you have. So, you know, the, the fact that even Chinchgatkuk is kind of in awe of this clothing and then Deerslayer says, like, this is why we have an advantage because they'll want these material things. This kind of pettiness of, or, or uh, kleptomania, I guess, of the, of, of the Indians is talked about here. So underneath the clothing, they find two pistols and the chapter sort of ends with them still digging around the box. And that's where we'll kind of pick up next time. Um, that's, that's about 100 pages. So I'll stop right here. But the next chapter basically is mid-scene. Now this, the Deerslayer is a story of contrasts and we're reminded them of them in every single chapter here. The themes in this novel are hidden in the themes of contrast, right? We've, we've seen gender and class being contrast on the theme education and vulgarity and where does education come from Deerslayer's well trained but he lacks the refinement that judith has in language we have uh, another theme here of really conquest and religion the the partnership of religion with the conquest the missionary's role in in empire building in in the west and this is a lot of the resentment that the Indians have towards Christianity comes from their, the pairing of empire and, and religion. And then throughout the whole book, we of course have this contrast between the Indians 
um, and whites, especially in the character of the Deerslayer, who understands both quite well, but is the most insistent on having a strict divide between the morality of one and the other. And we also have a little bit here on like appearance versus reality, even like Chinagachku dressing up as a white man, right? Or um, Deerslayer's ugliness, uh, which is very later revealed to be something that Judas is attracted to him because of his skills and, and ability. Even just that, well, like one of the guns they pick up, it looks beautiful, but it turns out to be broken. So there's a lot of kind of misunderstandings about um, about uh, reality based on how things are presented. And we also see here the importance of names. Uh, the names are really all have really strong meaning here. Chinchgachkuk's name mean, meaning serpent, um, deer slayer. And then he later on gets the name in these, these chapters of Hawkeye, right after he kills a man, Judith. Hetty, Hurry Harry, his name is, is a reflection of, of who he is in large part. And there's even a conversation somewhere in this book. It's a long book, but I don't remember exactly where. But there's a conversation about how the name fits him quite well. Um, well, so so that does it for the second hundred pages of The Deerslayer. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, really leave your comments below if you have any. If you've read this novel, if you have any thoughts about it, I'd love to hear what you have to say. You can leave a comment below or you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but if not, uh, I'll be back shortly with uh, the next 100 pages of, of The Deerslayer, which will take us past the midway point of the novel and, and head us straight on into towards the climax. So again, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Let Christian men take heart today The devil's rule is done Let no man heed the devil more For Jesus Christ has come But hear ye all what angels sing How Mary made for Jesus King Jesus